Um, today's um, scripture reading comes from Psalm 1 through, one, through, 1 through 6. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day, day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and, le- and its leaves does not wither. In all that he does, he, pro- he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the, in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows that the way of the righteous, righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. I feel like I'm way back here. Good to see you all out this morning. I appreciate uh, the presence of each person. We've got a good group today and uh, appreciate uh, the singing, prayers, uh, <laughs> Stephen's Lord's Supper talk, and David's uh, summary of the Battle of Thermopylae. <laughs> Just kidding. It is important. I mean, the Bible doesn't give us a, you know, you open up the book of Judges and you got all these names and places. It doesn't, it, it assumes you know. So you, you, we are always going back into the then and there of a culture and a language every time we open the Bible. A lot of it we take for granted. Um, a whole lot of people in the world don't know the New Testament was written in Greek. And that it, a whole phalanx of Greek scholars are, are needed to give us the Bible in our own language. So appreciate all the people who've, all the scholars who work on those kinds of things continually. And it's nice sometimes to be reminded. And you can see the, the hand of God, the providence of God, and the rising and falling of nations and so on. Like Acts 17 says... He's appointed the times and seasons, um, the extents, uh, geographically and temporally of these, these nations um, so that we might all grope after God. Um, God's hand is in that. Well, in this little series of sermons that we began a couple of weeks ago, Matt and I have been overviewing the grand story, the big picture story of the Bible through the lens. A lot of ways to look at the scripture, a lot of lenses that we can read it through that come from the Bible itself. We're invited to put on these different glasses and read it. And one of those is this theme of king or kingdom. Specifically, the kingdom of God, or as it's called often in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven, the abode of God. And so we've been tracing that kingdom motif through the first two major sections of the Old Testament up to this point. Um, The section called the law or the Torah. And then last week in Matt's sermon, the prophets. The Nevi'im, as the Hebrews would have called it. And we've used those divisions and that ordering of the Old Testament books, which, which was the one used by biblical Jews for hundreds of years. Uh, it's got the same books in it as our Bibles do for the Old Testament, but um, arranged very differently from the, the little four or five part taxonomy you might have learned in Sunday school years ago. Um, and they didn't use ours, they used theirs. And so we're starting there. And today we're going to turn to the third section of uh, the, the Hebrew Bible, the, the Bible of Jesus' day. And that section is called the writings or the ketuvim. And this is the, the, uh, the threefold classification of, of the Old Testament that uh, Jesus himself uses. Uh, we see this in Luke 24, and Matt referred to this last week, this verse, where Jesus on the road to Emmaus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me 
in the law of Moses, that's the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So let's just look at this really quickly. I know this has got a really small font up there. Uh, it's hard to get all that in one that, that, that's big, but law has the same books in it we do. Uh, we have in our first, you know, the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Old Testament, and then all bets are off. It's completely different. Not completely, but very, very different, I should say. Jesus says the law had scriptures that were referring to me, so did the prophets. And there are books in the prophets that um, we would consider history, right? And I think Matt made an excellent point last week, something to the effect of, if a prophet is the mouthpiece of God and a, a prophecy is a divine oracle to someone, in the case of Matt's lesson, to kings, to people in authority who've inverted the pyramid the wrong way and put kings above God's prophets and priests, and that prophet is trying to re, uh, revert, turn it right back side up and, uh, or upside down depending on your perspective, and get them to, to submit themselves as kings to the law of God, which is being articulated to them through priests and prophets, then it makes sense that books like Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings would be prophecy. Because they're stories that function as an, an, an kind of in a norming way. They're norming the king, ideally, or whoever it is, the reader, back to the authority of the real king of the universe, and that is Yahweh. And then we get the writings, which Jesus refers to here with the word Psalms. Why does he do that? Probably because the Psalms is the first book in the writings, and it's the largest book in the writings. So it sort of represents the writings. But he says all of those scriptures, what we would call our Old Testaments, ordered differently by them, still the same material, was pointing to Jesus. It's really about, ultimately, Jesus the Messiah. All right, so the question we raise today then is this. How do these scriptures called the writings contribute to the story of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, in the Bible. What contribution do they make to this theme of the kingdom of God? We've looked at the law, we've looked at the prophets, now today we're going to look at the third part of that taxonomy, the, the writings. So let me say, first of all, that what the, one, one way to look at this is that the writings, this part of the Old Testament, is a portrayal collectively of the good life under the good king. Anybody here interested in the good life? I think all of us are. That's what every human is pursuing. We define it different ways, not that widely across different cultures and times. We need some of the basic things, but parts of that we define in different ways. But everybody on the planet throughout all time is looking for the good life. And what the, the writings say is, here's a picture of the good life, and it, it occurs, it's able to transpire, it's able to flourish under the good king. Those are inextricably linked together. Um, the very first, uh, when you, if you were to just pick up the first scroll of the writings, the Psalms, the Psalter, Psalm 1 and 2, the initial Psalms in the book of Psalms, would, would, would cause you to encounter um, a kind of orientation statement about how to read the Psalms. So Psalms 1 and 2 basically are, are there to show us this is the paradigm that God has in mind for the, the proper reader, his position, her her uh, vantage point, uh, the, the state of his or her heart, and so on. This is how you're supposed to read the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 and 2 tell us about that. Kind of a key for how to read them. Uh, and, and perhaps even a key to how to read the whole writings, all of the writings. So this is the big you know, first step into the writings. And I want you to notice here that Psalm 1 that Jace just read begins this way. This is the beginning of Psalms. It's the beginning of Psalm 1, and it's the beginning of the writings. Blessed. 
the man. Blessed is the man. All right. Any reader of Scripture then would probably have thought, all right, blessed. We, I know that word. That's a big Bible word. In fact, to say blessed is the human, a human can be blessed if what, harks back to two pivotal moments in the biblical storyline. In fact, we go back to page one, <laughs> chapter one, you might say, Genesis 1.28. I know every week we talk about this passage. It's pretty seminal since it's the first time we meet humans in the Bible story. If you want to know what it means to be human, start here. If you're interested in the Judeo-Christian answer to that question. Human identity, human thriving, all of it, start right here. And God blessed these two first humans. He blessed humans and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He uses all this kingly language, have dominion or rule, reign, some versions translate this, over all the rest of creation. So he's inviting these humans, he's blessing them and saying, I want you to reign with me, be co-regents with me, uh, bear my image for me out in the rest of creation. So we get a second picture of this. You know, it gets derailed, obviously, if you keep reading Genesis 3, the derailment begins, and then the whole train's rolling off the track and rolling down the side of a mountain by the time you get to Genesis 11. And then in Genesis 12, we see God's covenant with Abraham when he is promising to fix things, to put the train back on the track, you might say, and, and to head it in the right direction again. Genesis 12, we have the blessing word again. Abraham is called to, and told to go from his country, um, and from his kindred and from his father's house to the land, God says that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. So to talk about taking man or humans and blessing them is a very biblical theme already. And here we are in the writings opening up that same way. I'm going to give you a picture, the writings are saying, and the Psalms are saying as the initial you know, foray into that body of, of scrolls, of what the good life, the blessed life, looks like. So the, the writing's open with these psalms. And the first two psalms, taken together, this is a very important point, connect two ideas. One is finding the blessed life, and the second one is the question of who is the king? Who's the king? You can't read Psalm 1 and 2 without putting those two, if you read carefully and, and sensitively, without putting those two questions together. How do you arrive at the good life? Who's the king of your life? Look at this with me. So I've got Psalm 1 in the dark blue and then Psalm 2 pulling up in the light blue. And it begins this way. Psalm 2 begins in verse 1. Why do the nations rage? Why do the, the, the Gentiles rage and the, and the people's plot in vain? Notice the king language here. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against Yahweh, and against His anointed King. And then, I've, I've, you know, skipping down to verse 12 here, the concluding verse of Psalm 2, kiss the Son, pay homage to the Son, submit yourself in adoration and devotion to the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. And then notice how the psalm ends. Psalm 2 ends the way Psalm 1 begins. A statement about how and who gets blessed. Blessed are all who take refuge in that king. You want the blessed life that's like a tree beside 
you know, an ever-flowing stream and is verdant and fruitful and thriving no matter what comes. How do you get that? It's bound up with the question of who's in charge? Who's the king? Who's ruling? So both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are linked by this subject of the blessed life and by the related question of what the blessed person and the wicked person, by contrast, spend their days obsessing on, focusing on, meditating on, strategizing about. The reason I put it that way is because there is a, a, a verbal link here with this word meditate. You can't see it in the English, but the, it's the same Hebrew word. So Psalm 1 verse 2 says, The blessed person is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, on the Torah, he meditates. Day and night. He's obsessed with, he's just sitting there muttering. You can picture him like just talking to himself, going, oh, this is, just, just obsessed with it. By contrast, verse 1 of chapter 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain, is the exact same word, daga. It raises a question for us. Of what are we pondering? What are we imagining? Where's our thought life? What are we dreaming about and worrying about and strategizing about? What are we meditating on? The writings say, as their opening psalms say, that in short, the good life is the life fixated on and dedicated to following the instruction of the Lord, the Torah of the Lord while the non-blessed life is fixated on throwing off the Lord's rule in a bid for self-rule, for autonomy. That age-old gem that turns out to be fool's gold, right? Autonomy. Garden of Eden. And we replicate that pretty much every day we have that struggle, if, if we're honest. In our relationships, who's in control? You know, in groups, uh, work, in our country, on every level. Who's, I want to be in control. And right out of the gate, Psalm 1 and 2 are asking us to think hard about this question. What are our days and our lives more focused on? How we can achieve, you know, how we can wrest more control and contrive situations to get control for ourselves? Or how we can better learn to trust the Lord's way? To trust the Lord's law, the Lord's word more. And that's the choice really presented here in Psalm 1 and 2. That, that's sort of an orienteering uh, set of, of writings. It's, it's telling us this is how you read the Psalms. This is how you enter properly into the writings. By thinking about that, that sort of uh, template. Who's the king and how do we lead the good life? The good life is a life led under the rule of the good king. How do we get that good life of blessing? First of all, we have to believe that true wisdom, not just information or theological data, but wisdom, Hebrew word wisdom, hakmah, which is more like practical skill for living than it is just, I've got a bunch of the correct data in my head and I can spout it off to see if I can get fellowship at this church or not. No. We're talking 24-7, the, the other 98% of your life that the Bible talks about. Not the 2% that you do in an assembly and when you join a church or whatever. Skill for living, doing relationships, doing the, having the proper priorities. 
the use of your time and money, where you get your identity from, what your inner state is like, whether you have that kind of integrity, spiritual integrity, that was so ably presented to us this morning in Greg's class. All of that comes from wisdom. And we have to believe that, it, that wisdom is found in the instruction of the Lord. Psalm 119, which is just long, you know, acrostic psalm about the glories and beauties of the word of the Lord, of His law, of His Torah, of His instruction, of His teaching, says this, Great peace, oh, I forgot, I forgot this. I, I, I forgot I had this little slide. So Psalm 2 starts talking about how the kings of the earth say something that I, I would suggest that most of us struggle not to say all the time. Maybe not in these words. It sounds old-timey and sort of biblical. It is biblical <laughs> from the Bible. Uh, imagine that. Sounds biblical. Verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. How much of your energy strategizing, meditating, plotting, is essentially, at the end of the day, about how do I get fewer bonds and cords on me? How do I get more self-rule, more autonomy? That's a problem, because Psalm 1 and 2 say that is the problem. That takes the good life and derails it. All right, that's going backwards, because I forgot I had that in there. Remember that language, though. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The one who sits in the heavens is going to laugh at that. That we could be, you know, the, the authority over anything, ultimately. So we have to believe that, that the wisdom that fuels the good life comes from the Lord alone. Great peace, Psalm 119 says. Who doesn't want peace? Great peace, where does it come from? It goes to those who love your law, he says to the Lord. Nothing can make them stumble. This is practical wisdom. It results in peace and the ability to not stumble as you go through all the inevitable obstacles that life is going to put in your way. Where does it come from? Believing that that wisdom is found in the law of the Lord and loving it by virtue of that. And we also have to fear the Lord. Not just have the academic belief, you know, the sort of ability to confess the sort of standalone data point. Well, yes, wisdom is true wisdom is found in the Lord's Word. Okay, that's one thing. It's an essential thing. But another thing you got to have is you got to care about that in your heart, in your life. You've got to have what's called in the Bible the fear of the Lord, a kind of reverential awe for the one who has given us that wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the prerequisite for gaining this divine wisdom, as several of the Proverbs tell us. Proverbs, of course, is another book in the, the writings. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You're not going to get God's wisdom, that chakmah, that, that skill, set of, of skills for, for navigating life and finding the good life. You're not going to get that if you don't start with a reverential awe for the one who is truly on the throne. Fear of the Lord. And look at this beautiful passage in Proverbs 14, verse 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. And his children will have a refuge. One of the, mo the best things you can do for a family is to have the parents in charge of the family fearing the Lord and modeling that. Because your children are going to find that as a, a castle, a fortress. Psychologically, spiritually, socially, every kind of way. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. That one may turn away from the snares of death. Right? Life is not just this, you know, 
mindless uh, skipping down some primrose path, right? It's got hazards. It's kind of scary out there. Um, and our kids know that full well. How do you get through those snares? How do you find the fountain of life? Well, it starts with fearing, re reverencing the Lord. Following the wisdom that is revealed within His law and when you do, and that, that's just kind of what the writings are saying. Let me just net this out before we go to our second point. The point of Proverbs seems to be, at least, this. Hey, you want to live the good life? Then here's what you do. Here, it's like a formula. You want the good life. Here's what it looks like, and here's what you do to get it. You resolve to truly follow the law of God, and you will have the life that is the good life. Pretty simple. That's Proverbs. And that's a good bit of the writings. Here's a picture of the good life. Follow the good king, you'll have the good life. But there's a little more to it in the writings, as you might expect. For one thing, you didn't expect me to finish at 11.07. So you, you, it's like when you're watching, I know that person didn't do it because there's five more episodes. <laughs> right? And it's like, it's cheating, but it, you know. And what are they going to talk about the next five? Right? So... But it's like the Bible to be a little more tricky than that, isn't it? To like hook us and then turn it on us and things like that. The writing is a little more complicated. There's a lot more nuance we're going to have to be sensitive to. But one takeaway from them is that it is a picture on one level of a kind of a formula. Here's the good life. It follows from making the good king your king. But perhaps somewhat paradoxically, the writings also remind us that this good life, the one presented in the writings will still involve suffering. In other words, suffering is part of this life in the present. Even in the lives of those seeking to live by the king's wisdom and to submit to the good king. They get the good life, but even they, odds are, are going to have some challenges. They're going to face suffering, perhaps oppression, and so for all its many blessings and its superiority to the alternatives, there is still struggle and hardship in the good life. If the writings, to use Shakespearean categories, if, if they give us comedy, they also give us tragedy. And what set of documents, what oration or you know, piece of literature are we going to really believe that doesn't do that? Right? Unless you're like five years old and really naive. No offense, five-year-olds. Life gets a little more complicated for many of us. We're not going to believe it if it doesn't do that. Right? So sometimes Proverbs sounds a little bit like Chamber of Commerce literature. Move here and everything's wonderful. We're third and then Fortune Magazine, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, we also have this other stuff they're not going to tell you about. Proverbs is wanting to picture like, do these kinds of things. And it's a general rule that a good life will result. And we're, we're, we're right to teach our kids that. There is a general cause and effect there. But the writings say a lot more than that. And they say you start cherry picking just Proverbs for your life, you're going to end up with some distortions like the health and wealth gospel. They love that book. You do the X and Y will happen every time. Ding! You know, it's like a 1950s commercial with no irony. If you've ever seen like throwback commercials. There's like zero irony back then. I don't understand that, but like... I guess it was a happy, we have more darkness now. If there's not some irony and paradox, I usually am a little bit skeptical. Just because look around <laughs> the world. 
And I think the, the writings show us a true picture of the good life, that it does involve suffering. There's some darkness still. We've not reached the not yet, we might say. And usually the suffering comes at the hands of those who want to put someone besides the true king on the throne of their life. All right? And that someone is you and I, often. Haven't we all fallen for the fiction that my life works best when I'm in charge? Control is a... It's fool's gold as well, because we never really have it. But even when we think we have it, 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 it sort of lies to us and tells us everything's good now. It, it, it promises so much more than it delivers. Even when we have control, sometimes we're at our worst when we have more control. Having control and it working assumes that you know where you're going and know what you're doing. And Jeremiah tells us three or four times we don't fundamentally know what we're doing. And we've all been people who don't want any bonds on us. We don't want the cords. We don't want anything binding us. And, and if it could just get severing all the bonds and cords, if I could just be king of my life or queen of my life, then everything will be better. And really what happens is we often create a hell on earth. Do you know the name George MacDonald? George MacDonald was a huge, he was a Scottish uh, preacher and then like a, a professor somewhere, Aberdeen or somewhere, I don't remember where. But he was one of the most, most seminal influences on C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis loved reading George MacDonald. And he, he said this on one occasion, I don't know where, but he wrote this or said this, the one principle of hell. You want to boil down what hell fundamentally is, what it comes from, is I am my own. Is there anything, if I didn't have the first part of that quote up there, just had everything after the comma, and I just put, I am my own, can't you just hear a thousand American heroes saying that? Doesn't it sound like John Wayne, one of his movies? Rugged and a Marlboro man in those commercials when I was a kid. He's just out there alone, controlling things. He's got a firearm, a can of beans, and a horse. He's good, man. <laughs> He's in charge until he's not. George McDonald says the one principle of hell actually is, I got it. I'm my own. And I think George McDonald is way closer to the gist of the biblical writings than a lot of our uh, national mythology, and not just ours. Lots of, it's a, that's a human problem, or it wouldn't be in the Bible. It's not just an American problem. In the Bible, suffering... The suffering of God's people often is inflicted by forces from the outside, from worldly kingdoms that are opposed to God's kingdom. Just like Psalm 2 said, they're trying to throw off the yoke and laugh at God's anointed and be their own anointed. And whether that's Egypt, when is there not a foreign pagan power in the backdrop behind God's people in the whole biblical story? Almost the entire span of the Bible. You've got Egypt and then you've got the Assyrians, you've got the Babylonians. David went through some of these. The, the Medo-Persian Empire and they're replaced with the Macedonian slash Greek Empire. Then the Romans in Jesus' day. And you could go on beyond that. Right? And talk about 
some of the things that happened in the Roman Empire and Christianity that are a little questionable in the centuries following the end of the first century. You can talk about the Holy Roman Empire moving up into medieval history, you know, and early modern history, the French Empire and the British Empire, and, you know, the, the Germans, not just in World War I, but in World War II, war, war belt buckles that said, Gott mit uns, God is with us. Everybody claims God and tries to blend in many, not everybody, but a whole lot in human history. There's, there's all, these, these people that want to um, appropriate the rule of God for themselves. And I think Matt did a great job of talking about some of those dangers because they're subtle often. We have to be good at sniffing out counterfeits from the real biblical picture of what authority and kingship looks like. So in the writings, we often see this idea that there's going to be suffering in the good life. Lamentations, right? Book of Lamentations. Just its name tells us. It brings both kinds of suffering together, really. The, the people of God are in anguish due to the abuse of the Babylonian Empire. They are attacked, they are shackled, they're exploited, and yet that punishment is allowed. Why? Because God's people had repeatedly disregarded His Torah, His instruction, His law, His teaching. They put their finger in the air and followed the whims of the cultures around them. Who are we? They can, look, those, all those people you know, worship uh, these other gods. We're going to do that too. And they pay the price. Another book in the writings, one of the oldest books in our scriptures, probably the oldest, presents a kind of suffering that has little to do with doing wrong. Now, some of the characters in the story are convinced it's per straight up a karma arrangement. The causation is, liter is linear and perfect, and so, so say Bildad, uh, Eliphaz, and Zophar. And Job, you may not know it, or maybe you don't want to admit it, but... That's the way God works. You get what you deserve every time. And the book of Job ends by defying our demand for a neat, linear, you know, kind of karma-like causal link between our behavior and our consequences. And it just leaves it there. And, and Job's basically said, you, you don't know what you're talking about, so why don't you just trust me? You know? Ecclesiastes, another book in the writings, which, like Job, pushes back uh, on the logic of the books like Proverbs. It reminds the faithful that while subscribing to divine wisdom might generally lead to the good life and make sense, quote-unquote, this life can also face a certain degree of randomness. How does the book of Ecclesiastes begin and end? It's bookended by this phrase, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Another way to translate that is absurdity, absurdity. All is absurd. I realize there's a coda at the end, at least I think it's a coda. The whole fear of God and keep His commandment. A lot of people, that's the only verse they know in Ecclesiastes. That's a mistake. Because the burden of the book, 99% of it is about, part of life is that it just doesn't seem to, you do all this stuff and it doesn't work. Who raises their kids according to Ecclesiastes quotes every day? Right? There's a reason we don't go, before you go to school, honey, just know that everything you do today, however much effort you expend, how much you listen to a teacher, however nice you are, it's all, it's all absurd. It's not going to matter to just come home and go to sleep. Yes, he does. There, some editor later, or maybe the, the preacher, you know, the Koaleth figure, uh, I kind of think it was the later, but whatever. There is, it is important. Fear God and keep His commandments. That's true. It's biblical. It's in the canon. 
But Ecclesiastes, the fact that Ecclesiastes and Proverbs are in the writings together says a lot about the wisdom of our God, that he's in touch with reality. Sometimes life's like that, sometimes it's like the other. And this suffering that we're talking about reaches each in the, even the highest echelons of society. In the Psalms, it is often the king himself who is suffering. Think of all the lament psalms written by King David. Words like Psalm 69 where he says, Save me. This is the king. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I, see, uh, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. You ever felt like this? I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Now, we often think, those of us who aren't kings, which is all of us, that if I just had this situation in life, if I had this amount of money or that guy's job or these resources, we think all our troubles would be gone. This is a king. So that's a pipe dream too. And remember, the, the author of Ecclesiastes has more than anybody that's come before him in Jerusalem. He's got, you know, choirs of singers, men singers and maid singers and wise people around him, and he's enjoying everything. He's got the wherewithal to do, to do whatever, what we would dream of. And he still says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So there's no escaping that often the good life will include suffering. And all such suffering is experienced because whether we think of it in this way or not, we humans are all still waiting for our King to come. To fully come and to renew, as the biblical promises go, all creation. So, our third and final point is that the writings, this third section of the Hebrew Scriptures, which Jesus refers to by the largest book in it, the Psalms, collectively, they not only portray the good life under the good king, and secondly, remind us that, that good life is going to have some suffering, but thirdly, through that, reassure us that God's kingdom promises are still alive and well. Despite what we feel, despite what we endure, despite what we see around us, those promises are still in effect. In the part of the writings that we would think of in our modern taxonomy of the Old Testament as poetry, right? We have, well, that, that's poetry. Psalm 89, for instance we see the psalmist wrestling with the reality that it appears the throne of David has been overtaken, over, is going to be overthrown by Israel's enemies. And yet he is still praising God for the covenant that he swore to David. Namely, that he would establish the throne of David forever. And the psalmist is in faith asking God to remember that covenant, to remember that promise. Psalm 89, 3 and 4, he says... You have said, God, he reminds him, remember what you said? It looks like it's in jeopardy big time, but you said something. Thus saith the Lord. He's, he's walking out on the limb. The world may think a very thin branch, but it's, a, it's an oak tree limb when it's a thus saith the Lord. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant that I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. You said that. I believe it. Please do it. That theme comes ringing out of the writings. 
Darkness is around us. Suffering. We, we begin on our worst day to not even believe we have the good life, maybe. Maybe our faith wavers. But there is this statement over and over again. It moves from the poetry sections of the writings to the narrative sections of the writings. And, and there we continue to see that God's promises and the people of God who bear those promises along are alive. They are surviving despite very challenging circumstances. So for instance, if we went to the, the book of Esther, which is one of the books in, uh, in the writings, um, it provides a snapshot of God's people who are not in their homeland, right? They're displaced. They're not placed in the, in the promised land anymore. The land that was promised to the descendants of Abraham. Something's happened. They are displaced. They're homeless. And they're being ruled over by very powerful pagan kings who worship and often claim to embody other divinities. And they appear to hold the fate of the Jews and the world in their hands. But in the book of Esther, God's people are kept alive in the face of this genocidal threat against them in the Persian Empire days by the bravery of one Jewish woman who came into the kingdom perhaps for such a time as this. The book of Daniel. Using strong apocalyptic imagery like the book of Revelation in the New Testament does, it pronounces God's kingly authority over every earthly kingdom. No matter what kingdom rolls along, whatever the next empire du jour is, God is over all of those earthly kings. They appear to destroy the very good life the writings portray for the people of God, but their apparent rule will not last forever. Instead, a divinely appointed ruler is still coming, one called the Son of Man. And we know who this will be. That title is appropriated by the gospel writers and applied to Jesus. Jesus himself uses it. I saw in the night visions, this is a, a, a vision where... Uh, Image, images represent these different empires that succeed one another throughout geopolitical history. I saw in the night visions, this is Daniel 7, 13, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came before the Ancient of Days, God, and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion. That's Genesis 1 language, right? And glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations and languages, all of them should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That sounds a lot like 2 Samuel 7, where David is told, I'm building a house for you, a dynasty for you, a royal dynasty, and one will set upon it one day, who will also be my anointed, my Messiah, and of His kingdom there will be no end. He will rule everything forever. And Daniel's basically saying, here's another kind of apocalyptic vision version of the same promise. It's still in effect. Despite the fact that the people are dealing with exile and all the horrors that went with that. So the point is, all is not lost. It's never lost for the people of God. The writings tell God's people that despite all of the opposition to God's good rule that they are facing, whether from the oppressive earthly kingdoms from without or also from within their own sinful attempts, my own sinful attempts, to achieve the good life without God's rule over me, whether it comes from in or without, still, God has neither given up on His promises nor on His people. 
And the writings tell us that. And this is evident in the last book of the writings, the Chronicles, our first and second Chronicles. Last book of the Hebrew canon in a sense. And this is written when the people of God are coming off decades in Babylonian captivity. You can imagine all of the uncertainty, all of the sobering questions, dark answers possibly to these sobering questions that they're, they're dealing with. Questions about Israel's identity. Questions about how, how did we get ourselves into such a mess? Could we ever possibly get out of this? Is God even still with us? Has He abandoned us? Maybe we deserve it. And in that context, historically, theologically, spiritually, psychologically, Chronicles is a retelling of Israel's history. But this is important. Like biblical narrative, typically, it's not just, let's just have five of the same thing. They're not just videotapes, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the life of Christ. They're styled and angled toward a, a certain theological agenda. Same with the narratives in the Old Testament. And what is Chronicles doing? It's coming to the people at this time of exile with all of these existential questions in their minds. And no doubt, lots of doubt. It's a retelling of the history of Israel, but from the particular angle that God wants to assure them that He has not abandoned His original plans. Neither for Israel, nor through Israel for all the earth. He remembers His promises yet to Abraham and to David. He will lead them out of exile and He will yet establish His kingdom. Let's close by reading the last paragraph in the writings, most probably, and arguably the Hebrew canon, the Old Testament, in their ordering. So this is, you're coming out of exile, this is what you get. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So you got Yahweh working through an ostensibly pagan king. So that Cyrus made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, remember all caps, that's Yahweh, the God of heaven, he didn't just call him the God of Israel, He's on some level recognized, this is actually the king. King of kings, king. The God. The God of heaven has given to me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house, a temple, at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Ugh. Let him go up. And so if there's a... I guess a, a takeaway, you know, message from all this, it's let us go up. Strengthened by the promises of God that despite the darkness around us, in ourselves or outside ourselves, despite all of our failures, despite the, the, the consequences of others' failures upon us, let us individually and collectively go up. By that I mean live into and out of the sure and certain promises of our Lord. There will be challenges. This is real life God's talking about. The writings present real life. And yet, the Lord of that real life is the Lord. 
capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Come back next week. With all this biblical context on the kingdom story behind us, we're going to now look at the coming of Jesus of Nazareth. All right? Appreciate your attention today. Uh, we will um, sing a song here in a second. Nick's going to lead us. If there's anything we can do to help anybody here spiritually, prayers, Bible studies, we have a baptistry if somebody is ready to, to uh, give their life to Jesus uh, in the obedience of faith, as Paul puts it in Romans, we'd like to help you in any way that we can. We're just people. We're sinners. But we believe the king is good. And he holds out to us the best life possible. Let us know how we can help you. All together we stand and sing.